Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 27th of September, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. A year ago, it was €77 cheaper on average to rent somewhere to live than it is today. Figures published this morning by the Residential Tenancies Board show how new tenants are paying 8.4% more now than they would have 12 months ago. Nationally, rents cost on average €1,094 a month. Dublin, as you'd expect, is the most expensive place in the country, followed by Cork. County Meath is one of the most expensive places to live outside the two big cities, more expensive than Limerick. The average cost of renting in Limerick is €920. It's €1,057 in Meath. That's the average. And as we know, in the north of the county, tenants will pay far less than in places like Ashburn or in Dunboyne. Rent will be similar to that in Dublin where the average cost is now €1,587 a month. And now the prices have soared and the most expensive in the country behind Meath, Wicklow and Kildare the average cost in Louth now stands at €983 again more expensive than Limerick. As is the case in Meath some towns will be paying more than and others, and renters in Drogheda can expect to pay much more than that. John Mark McCafferty, the Chief Executive Officer of Threshold, is on the line. And John Mark, I thought there was rent pressure zones and that rent shouldn't increase by more than 4%. If you take Louth alone in the last year, people are paying €78 Euro more than they would have then today. It's an increase of 8.5%. How is this the case? Yes, well, affordable, affordability is still uh, a, a really big issue for, for tenants and, and would-be renters out there, Michael. Um, and um, for us, this points to the need for a rent index so that people can see exactly what the rent of a given property is. We have that for um, you know properties that are bought. We have a, a register for, the, for purchased properties. We don't have a register for rental properties. Um, and currently, um, government's proposals are for a kind of approximated, you know, local um, rent le- rent register, which doesn't give you the detail that you really, really need to be able to um, compare 
uh, with um, you know uh, if you're if you're moving into the market mm. and you're looking for a, a rented property that you're able to to know then what the the, the rent level was um, for the previous occupier. So I mean the the rent levels continue to go up. The the difference with this um, study or this this um, this quarterly report is that there is um, a comparison between. Um, new tenancies and existing tenancies and what it does point to is um, a, quite a gap as you'd imagine between existing tenancies and new tenancies new tenancies the rate, the, the, the levels are, are higher mm. um, and that's showing that to some extent to some extent the rent pressure zones um, are working um, obviously um, we see in our work with tenants across the country uh, in the rent pressure zones that many landlords are um, ignoring the rent pressure zones or they're doing things to try and circumvent the rent pressure zone rules. But they're but increasing there it by multiples when people move out before new people move in. And that's because, um, well, some landlords are doing that deliberately, even though they know the rules. Some landlords might not be completely familiar with the rules. There, there is um, a misconception that once um, a tenant um, leaves a property, the landlord can set it at the, the market rate. They can't do that. Um, if they're renting within two years of, of the time that the, that property was, was let, um, then they have to rent it at um, the, the level uh, with a maximum of, of around 4%. So um, this legislation was intended to protect both existing renters and new renters coming into the market. The problem is that with so many landlords increasing rents once um, a tenant leaves a property, um, when a new tenant comes into that property, it's very difficult for them. There's really no way for them to ascertain what that rent level was. They can ask the landlords, but mm. it's, it's the landlord's word against theirs. Um, and without a, a proper rent register, which gives us the detail on a property-by-property property basis, and um, without proper enforcement at the level of the RTB, we will continue to see rents um, increasing and, and increasing and outstripping the 4% rent pressure zone um, limits in those areas. I was asking about house prices the other day and how it is less than 100 to buy a house in Donegal and 450,000 to buy a house in Dublin. Uh, similar to that, you've got to look at these figures and ask, how is it €565 Euro to rent somewhere in Longford and over 1500 to rent in Dublin? I guess it um, comes down to market forces um, in that um, work um, and opportunities are in the cities. Um, people tend to uh, want to live in cities. Oh, but the differences um, are mad, aren't they? The differences are... The differentials are, are, are very, very significant. Um, and that is a real problem for people trying to um, source, uh, you know, mm. it, the, the big issue for it is... I mean, if it was 500, 500 euro in Longford, 800 in Dublin or 1,000 in Dublin, that might make sense, but not 1,500, not uh, three times the price. Yeah, well, the, yeah, these are multiples. And um, the problem is that it stops people moving. Um, it stops people, you know, um, going for the opportunities uh, that might present themselves um, in terms of jobs, um, in terms of kind of changes in, pe- in people's lifestyle. Um, if it means that it's so much more to live closer to the, the larger urban areas um, 
and and that is a big challenge for for people in their quality of life because their limit their their options are more limited and they have to factor in um, very very high rent levels in in the cities and in the surrounding areas you mentioned there mm. you know obviously places like ashburn um, Dunboyne, um places i know i know well mm. um that are effectively um you know almost suburbs now of dublin and so therefore are are affected hugely okay. by the, the the dublin rental market all right we'll leave there thank you very much indeed john Mark McCarthy, the Chief Executive of Threshold. Now, as you've been hearing, County Mead has recruited five new Gardaí. If it was recruiting on the same basis as Gardaí are being recruited in Limerick, uh, there'd have been an additional 400 Gardaí. Finnefall Councillor Tommy Riley is on the line, and uh, I think you've been making the case for some time for additional Gardaí for the county. Good morning, Michael, and uh, thank you. Um, yes, I have for, for, for a number of years now, and, uh, you know, we had our own experiences there last year, and, and, and thank you for your, your help and your, your sympathy t- towards us in that case. But uh, the guards uh, in Navan, particularly the ones in Navan, uh, they're living in outdated facilities. They're working there, and, you know, it's, it's an absolute disgrace to, to all governments. The last government, this government, the one before, that there has not been a proper station built with proper facilities for these guards because uh, we're after looking I spoke to Fergus Healy the chief superintendent I spoke to superintendent Michael Devine and looking for sites here looking for sites there around the town of Melbourne and we just we can't get one because they want one big enough that'll house all the guards house all the cars that's coming off the road house all this type of stuff and we we just can't get one close enough to the town centre we've looked at four or five sites in the Melbourne area over the last couple of years but I think, and I've been on about like the mm. recruitment that was stopped in when the recession came in, that it's ridiculous. There are three pillars in society, or three, which is guards, teachers, and nurses. And I mean, they should be looked after, number one in this country. But does this put things in a different perspective? But Because if we think back to the way your son was beaten black and blue uh, and you intervened quite infamously at uh, this stage uh, there was a, a concern that the guards just weren't doing their job that they could have caught these fellas red-handed and they let them go uh, until there was media pressure and such like uh, but perhaps there just aren't enough guards to do the job rather than them not doing it well apart from enough guards and on that on that on that um on that issue on that on that incident uh one of the guards told uh, my son later uh, when he was up for him taking statements went on for an age but there was 15, 20 fellas in that bunch at the far side of the road that night and five of them took to the side to, to two first and then three joined them to, to rain and kicks on my son and all like that but he said that they hadn't the facility to take in four, 10 or 12 of them that night they had not got the facility in Navin Garda Station to Where would they put them? Well, the so there's safety in numbers. If you're going to rob yeah. a bank, don't do it yeah. on your own or with your mate. Get, <laughs> yeah. get, get, yeah. get a good big gang to do it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 you know it's it, it, it's wrong. Like it, it's wrong that the government and and government's prior. I'm not just blaming this government. Government's prior have not looked after the guards, the nurses, and the teachers. I mean, there's guards sleeping in their cars in Dublin coming from Longford, North Monaghan, Roscommon, Leitrim and these places, because they can't afford, they can't get mortgages for the salary they're getting. So, I mean, there's none of the TDs in Leinster House or Minister sleeping in cars, you know, they've all the facilities that you, that you can get there. And these poor unfortunate boys and girls that's coming from down the country and have done their service and doing service to the country, 
this is this is the life they have to lead. No, they have to take a second job somewhere mm. on the QT to try and live just for living. So, I mean, that's a terrible situation with your with your law and order system in this country. Right, but if you look at the number of guards, the claim here is that they need more additional guards than they have working at the moment. There's 321 guardee in County Meath, and they say that that should be 720. Sure, that's ridiculous if that's right. It is, it is. If that's, if that's, if that's right, it's absolutely and utterly ridiculous, you know. But again, I say, you know, the, the, the people talk about stations closing and one guard and something like that. If you have a proper facility for people to work in, in any, any walk of life, you know, it, it's tough It's tough on the people that's do, doing the work and it's tough on their bosses to ask them to do this. And then if a guard makes in someone, the hoops he has to go through to get a charge against that person. I, I know it because mm. I'd be talking to them on a regular basis. It's absolutely, the judiciary is 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 is, is inexplicable now, so it is. And the legal, the legal end of things, the legal people, they just get in there free legal aid or whatever it is but you know there was laughing and sneering about Thornton Hall it should have been built it was needed to be built it was needed to be built they have no, they, they're as bad that was the no, youth no, detention centre which that's right yeah because like, you know you take a place like Johnstown now hmm. uh, we had a meeting there on Tuesday night and we had two guard the community guard and another guard a new guard that was there a lady and over 4,000 houses there not a facility for the young the young kids or the teenagers. So they're, they're, they're frustrated, yeah. they're bored. Yeah. So, they're so, what we should, so, so what should we do? Because we failed them in that sense, they're out doing other things. Uh, arrest them and lock them up? No, 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 that's not the answer to it. Give them a facility where they can get rid of their energy and that they'll, they'll, they'll enjoy what they're doing. And the guard, the, particularly in the, in the Navin area, the community guard and the superintendent was there and the inspector was there at the moment, are very anxious to try and get something going. But they themselves are working under terrible conditions. Mm. That's an antiquated building that they're in, an old, an old uh, school, uh, school where the Christian brothers lived a hundred years ago. That's what they're trying to work out of a mm. guard station with 40,000 people in the Navin well, area. The, the, the ones who are lucky, uh, uh, as I understand it, are working out of the guard station because I think uh, the outgoing superintendent told us that the Detectives are in prefabs at the back. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like it, 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 it's a terrible situation, and and you know, and I keep reiterating it that you know, guards, nurses, and teachers, the 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 the, 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 the making of our society, that the saving of our society, and if we don't look after those people, and we are not looking after them. We are not looking after our guards, nurses and teachers. OK, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed. Fianna Fáil Councillor Tommy Riley in Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, there was a heated uh, debate in uh, the Dáil last night on uh, the public health alcohol bill, which has been making its way through the Eructus for the last three years. Patricia Callan, Director of the Alcohol Beverage Federation of Ireland, is on the line. And it seems as though this will take some time before it completes uh, and is brought into law because of what uh, some are describing as filibustering in the Dáil last night. Well, I think the debate was real. Uh, a lot of TDs uh, right across all parties and independents were raising genuine concerns. Um, there wasn't filibus bustering as, as we know it. Essentially, yeah, 13 amendments were voted on. Uh, and the position currently is that the amendments that were proposed by the cross-party group of TDs to delete cancer uh, from alcohol labels, uh, that was defeated. So that will now be the case. But the minister was flagging that this now poses very real risk for the bill in terms of it getting through 
the EU approval process because essentially having Irish-only labels uh, means that you're creating a barrier to trade. Um, so other member states will obviously have an opinion on that. Uh, and uh, in order to trump uh, trade rules on the basis of health grounds, you have to be proportionate and evidence-based. And I think what was most notable last night was uh, that the health spokespeople were, were saying that they had no awareness of the link between alcohol and cancer. Well, Stephen so Donnelly said that. I don't think Louise Don, uh, O'Reilly said that, did she? Oh, sorry, yes, yes, it was yes. Stephen Donnelly. Mm-hmm. The Fianna Fáil health spokesperson, yes. And mm. if that is the case, uh, one of the things that you have to demonstrate, so if you're going to trump EU trade law, then you have to demonstrate that you've done everything possible uh, before putting in trade restrictive means. So that would be things like public awareness campaigns, leaflets, debates, uh, education initiatives, all of that, because if you've exhausted no measures, if you've never made any effort to tell people of these links, then it's hard uh, to justify the need to, to go to go, go on label at this point. And it also needs uh, to be evidence-based in terms of the actual nature of the problem in your particular member state. So you have to be different in some way. So the minister was flagging that he's proceeding ahead with the bill, even though he has concerns that it will now uh, get through course. that process. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, local Fine TD, Peter Fitzpatrick, spoke in the debate and he said that uh, imposing the cancer warning on Irish products will harm the reputation of Irish producers. Uh, another local TD, Fianna Fáil's Declan Brannock, also spoke and said, as he did on this programme, that he'd have preferred if the government had stuck to the original commitment to include uh, a general warning and that it may have an impact on small breweries and the type of business that they do. Uh, but there is an accusation that Declan Brannock and Peter Fitzpatrick are amongst 13 TDs that you have in your pocket. Well, that's not true. They're simply doing their job in terms of their constituencies. Like, I mean, uh, the idea that just because they're representing a business interest that that's somehow uh, fraudulent uh, is nonsensical. Did you write their amendments, though? The amendments they submitted were legally drafted amendments that we sent to them, absolutely. But, like, I mean, half those TDs I've never even personally spoken to they speak to their constituents who are raising genuine business concerns. So I was struck by the loftiness of the health arguments to say, oh, well, let's just try this out. But mm. if you're just trying something out that you know won't work, um, yes, the headlines will go right around the world, then ultimately you're not going to achieve your public health objectives, but you are going to damage the, the reputation of the, of the Irish uh, food and drinks business internationally with all of those headlines. But that's what so the I drinks industry says and some people, some people well, might it's say... it's already been reported in, in British media yesterday. It will be going around the world. But just, yeah. but just if I, I could put the mm-hmm. point to you, that's what the drinks industry says and some people might say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Whilst the health experts have a, a different opinion uh, and the Irish Cancer Society, for example... Uh, pleaded with the Minister to stick with his guns? Well, the, the drinks industry isn't faceless. Uh, you know, in, in your locality, there are plenty of entrepreneurs who set up uh, distilleries and breweries. They are normally in rural areas, and certainly uh, we are completely broadly based. They're individuals who have hired people, workers, who are happy to live in their homelands with their families and have good, decent jobs. The tillage farmers are happy that 15% of their crop is being paid at premium prices into our industry when it's been a terrible year for them. So it's not just a, this global term. These are actual people and businesses, and they're proud to be part of that business. And they're also bringing 2.7 million tourists to those centres right around the country, where, again, there aren't many other reasons, perhaps, for people to visit certain parts of the country. So, you know, it, it isn't faceless. But even on the health basis, 
if you're actually trying to actually warn consumers responsibly, the World Health Organization states that the actual main cause of deaths related to alcohol is injuries. That's followed by digestible diseases. That's followed by cardiovascular disease and diabetes. That's followed by infectious disease. And then you get to cancer. So if you really want to warn people in terms of the proportionality, then a general health warning, warning against excessive consumption is the right way to go. And of course, this is all about relative risk. So the J-curve is, is, is the agreed uh, uh, model for, for demonstrating the impact of alcohol on health. And that shows that if you drink at low levels, you will have better health outcomes than people who don't drink at all. But certainly once you start going up that curve in terms of moderate into mm. excessive then you will end up with real health difficulties and that's not what anyone wants. Yeah, and we know, should yeah. be properly warning and mm. regulating people for that. I'm not even sure about that. It's a, a little bit like coffee. Sometimes uh, I read that a, a glass of wine a day uh, will be good for your heart and longer life and all of that kind of thing. I, I mean, uh, the research on this seems to change by the day. It does. It's, a, it's actually the most researched such a substance on the planet. Mm. Uh, and obviously, uh, people have been drinking for a long time. And I think, you know, uh, you know, being alive is risky. Obviously, every day we make risk decisions in terms of crossing the road, you know, what we put into our bodies, whether we decide to be healthy, whether we were fit. Uh, and there's also a gene element to it. And I think people need to make that. Ultimately, that it comes down to the, that, that person making a responsible decision. But the government does have a, have a role in terms of educating and informing people. But you can do that much more effectively through other means rather than uh, this this, uh, model of going down on the label, which adds cost to business, is trade distortive, essentially a non-trade barrier. So it'd be actually very difficult for, for, for new companies who are outside Ireland to enter the Irish market because it would be too expensive for them to do Ireland-only labels. Uh, and equally then, the reputational damage to our industry. So in, in any piece of legislation, you do have to have a bit of regulatory balance. Mm. And really, it's about having a piece of legislation that, that will achieve its aims. And the aims of this bill is to tackle alcohol misuse and underage drinking and to reduce overall consumption. They're the main aims. So that's the important things that people uh, uh, right across the divide, including um, uh, manufacturers and distributors and retailers are, are, are equally concerned about because we are, like every other business, need to be sustainable into the future uh, and we want to do the right thing. These are human beings. They're not alien uh, uh, people, you know. And the consumers are human beings as well. I'm not sure uh, how this is going to play out politically for the government. Uh, Do you think there's a a risk that they might shoot themselves in the foot? Uh, I mean, I'd imagine you found it hard not to laugh out loud watching uh, the people on the television news last night who were asked about this in the RTE Vox Pop and they were shaking their heads talking about nanny states and never heard so much nonsense in their life and what difference would it make? It's absolutely ridiculous and all of that. And when you have an enthusiastic young health minister telling people how to live their lives, people may take exception to that. Well, I think that's definitely true. There is that sense about uh, about the nanny state. But I do think the government does have a role to play. For example, if they had never got rid of the ban on below-cost selling, we wouldn't have the problem with cheap drink that led to the excesses uh, 20 years ago. But at least we've made strides since then, again, through a lot of voluntary initiatives by the industry, both in terms of manufacturers and retailers, uh, to actually uh, try and redress that. Um, so I do think, you know, there, there are certain means. But at this point in time, we have this, the most expensive alcohol uh, in the EU. Yet when minimum unit pricing comes in, that will go up even more. So I don't think people are, will be prepared for that as a normal consumer. But equally with the, the labelling situation, for example, if, you, if you're if you fond of premium products, high-end wines mm. that you might only buy uh, every so often, they won't be on the shelves anymore because it will not be worth the while and the reputational damage for people to supply. So there will be a consumer 
end this ultimately. Yeah, and, and people also, like below cost selling. I, I mean, people like cheap drink in the same way they like cheap bread. Well, I do, but I don't agree with below cost selling. It should, you should never be using it as a loss leading product. But I certainly do think it should be sold at a responsible price. Um, and that, uh, again, as an industry here, certainly we're very focused All on... Right, well, that, that, that's tar- your industry, but the supermarket industry might t- think differently and no, absolutely, yeah. uh, and the consumer might be saying, I wish the drinks industry would ever mind their own business. If I want cheap beer, I'll go to the supermarkets that do it. And, you know, all well and good what you think about what's responsible and what's not. Well, I think actually that's a, a really important point because in my experience, and I've only been doing this job for the last year, the, the level of knowledge around what are the safe drinking guidelines is zero so that people do not realise when they think, hear headlines about us being bad binge drinkers, they don't realise that three pints is a binge. So we really do, uh, if we want to actually make a real dent in this issue and to encourage people to drink low to moderately, more regularly perhaps, or, or, or premium products, but certainly uh, this idea uh, of, of people thinking a binge is much more than that because they simply don't know. We do have a responsibility, I think, to educate people, but we haven't used, uh, exhausted any mm. any measures to do so. Um, and I think that's why, again, rather than the, the government uh, having this very expansive bill, which basically bans advertising uh, even to visitor centres um, and really has a, um, a lot of added cost and constraints in terms of the labelling, has structure separation costs as well um, that they actually need to focus on what are the real issues and the real issues is that for a small minority of people they have very serious issues and we need to look at addiction and supports and proper targeted measures mm. rather than targeting um, the normal consumers who are you know, going to work, earning an average income, they like to have a few drinks on a Friday evening with colleagues. They, they can like barely afford it, but because of minimum, pr- minimum pricing, they may not afford it at all. Yes, absolutely. Mm, yeah, uh, that right. would certainly drive up the price, and I don't think there's a huge level of awareness around that. Yeah. What, what, what's next? Uh, this uh, has uh, to go back to the doll, doesn't it? Uh, and then on to the Shannon to be finalised. Uh, how long do you think this will take, or what will happen next? Well, it's up to the government, obviously, to do the scheduling in the doll. So um, the session last night was uh, finished at at a point of time. Um, So I'm not sure yet uh, when they will go back to that, but there there aren't very many more amendments to get through. Um, At that point, uh, it does procedurally have to go back to the Shannon just uh, to be approved on the basis that the doll will have made changes. And then it would be signed into law by the president, at which point then to actually implement many of the measures, you have to to go through other processes Mm. So, for example, on labelling, going back to the European Commission on minimum unit pricing, yeah. there's a commitment that that will only happen when uh, the Nord- Northern Ireland introduces it, because mm. obviously, uh, being the all-island, you have this massive uh, um, export risk, as in, you know, the people simply just cross the border if you mm. you up the price in, in, in one place. And the Minister so was talking be, about uh, a transition period of three years for the labelling and that sort of thing as well, wasn't he? Well, that's, uh, mm. yes, well, like, yeah. I mean, that's just even in practical terms, in terms of, of product runs and shipments and all of that, you would have to give an elite lead in time. But in, in advertising, it's only a year and on all, all advertisements will have to carry the warning. So we do need clarity around that. Um, and, and even for people like, for example, the Sunday Times magazines, they come in plastic, uh, they're a UK product, uh, they will have to be completely redone because all Irish advertising will have to be Irish uh, carrying warnings and all of that. So it will be a, a also a disruptive uh, barrier to trade for the advertising magazine industry, even for TV stations, etc. Mm. So um, uh, there's a lesser lead-in time there. So we do we will need, and hopefully the Minister will engage with us and, and tell us what's going on, because so far he's refused to do so in terms of actually the mechanics of how this is all going to work out. Because mm. we do need to have certainty, because I know 
very definitely members, both large and small, have postponed investment decisions while this has been going on because okay. you can't invest if you don't know what the, what the, the, whether you're going to be pay, competing in a global uh, even marketplace and if it's better to do business elsewhere, then well, we'll go do it. It will probably become clearer in the coming weeks, uh, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, as always. Patricia Callan, Director of the Alcohol Beverage Federation of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the hospitality industry was in a crisis back in 2011. So as uh, jobs boost, the government reduced the rate of VAT paid by the sector from 13.5% to 9%. It was to be a temporary measure some seven years ago, but it should remain in place, according to the Restaurant Association of Ireland, which is concerned about the impact impact of Brexit and how the 9% could help offset uh, the downside of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. Adrian Cummins is the Chief Executive of uh, the Restaurants Association of Ireland. He's on the line. And Adrian, thanks uh, for joining us. Seven years on, it's hardly a a temporary situation. And as we've uh, discussed before, many businesses doing very well around the country. The VAT rate at 9% is the correct rate of VAT uh, when you benchmark Ireland against the rest of the European Union. 17 European Union countries have less than 9% and we believe that the government should keep it at 9 in light of Brexit next year. We don't know whether it's going to be a full hard Brexit or not. Many counties are going to be affected in businesses. Many of them will be in the border region. Low the Mead will be two of those counties that will be affected by, by Brexit. And we're saying to the government quite clearly that this is not the time to be looking at VAT rate uh, increase for our industry. Uh, We're trying to attract more tourists into the country. Mm. And many businesses will suffer because what happens is if VAT goes up, there's a cost uh, to the business. And what happens then is the business owner will cut hours or they'll try and reduce costs. Uh, or they will pass it on to the consumer and prices will go up. But we've been losing tourists from the UK, haven't we? We have lost tourists from the UK and and we shouldn't be looking at increasing VAT rate to try and and lose even more what we should be doing. Well, it's the differential in sterling that has caused that. But whilst we've lost tourists from the UK, we've seen tourism increase by 4%. And Brexit actually could play to our advantage in terms of tourism, couldn't it? Well, I don't see how Brexit will play to our advantage in in terms of tourists. Do you not? is still our well the UK is still our largest market oh well, well I know but I mean we see uh, people coming here from Spain and France and other parts of the world America obviously uh, a, a, a big country in terms of tourism as would be the case for the UK uh, but it might be more difficult for tourists particularly from continental Europe to travel to the United Kingdom after Brexit uh, and they could end up choosing Ireland instead well uh, Talking to our tourism chiefs uh, in, in Ireland, uh, they all tell me, and even the Department of Tourism are quite aware of that if, if, if it is a full hard Brexit, our biggest and largest market, which is the UK, will plummet. And that will have a knock-on effect right across the tourism industry. But it has plummeted, as you said yourself. We've seen a significant drop in the amount of tourists coming from the United Kingdom at the same time as the level of tourism increasing by 4%. And the 4% increase has been from the U.S. market predominantly with the increased flights coming in to, coming into Ireland. But doesn't that give great opportunity? Uh, and I would imagine that, given uh, the basic logic of it, that people will be hoping for a, a hard Brexit and that European tourists will come to Ireland instead of the United Kingdom. Well, 
I haven't heard one person in Ireland looking for a hard Brexit. I think the farmers would have, and the people around the border would be having a different opinion. Well, I think I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. But if you were wor- worried about business in, in hospitality, uh, there's quite a chance that it would play to our advantage. I don't believe. I'm, I totally and absolutely disagree with you because if you're a business and you're on the border and you are having cross-border uh, tours coming across from north to south, and many have, many do so, you'll have a disadvantage with a, with a hard border. You'll have also a disadvantage with the number of tours uh, on a dropping coming from the UK, which is our largest market. So what we're looking for is we need to make, we need... Uh, uh, Conti- continue to make profits uh, because... Uh the Department of Finance looked at the impact of VAT and said that the reductions have been passed on to the consumer by half, meaning you keep the other half. Isn't that right? Well, that's incorrect. When you when, when you look at the detail, the restaurant industry has passed on the uh, reduced rate of VAT and kept our prices competitive uh, over the last seven years. But businesses are How not... How do you mean competitive? Priority. Well, competitive as in... That we were told at the very at the when the VAT rate was reduced, yeah. our price our minister for finance was quite clear that he did not want to see price gouging uh, in in our sector, and we've done that. And every report, all four reports commissioned by the Department of Finance, have proven that our industry, which is the restaurant sector, has not uh, not. Uh, uh, entertained or being involved in price gouging. Right, well prices, prices, well well, well, it depends on what you call gouging. Prices in restaurants have increased by 7% in the last five years haven't they? And so has energy prices and so has wage wage inflation. Wage inflation has increased by 7% in the last five years. Sorry, if you, let me finish. A combination of wage inflation, energy prices, insurance costs, the cost of doing business has a, the wage inflation in this country has increased far more than 7% the, since 2000. The price of food has fallen. Uh, wages have not increased uh, in any way to speak of. Uh, you're charging more uh, and you're paying less in tax. Uh, you're making the case that that should continue to be a temporary situation seven years on from being given that advantage. And as an industry, we as an industry representing a business sector and small businesses around the country will say the same thing. That if you are looking at, well, they're not charities, they have to make a profit to, to pay their staff, to pay their taxes and keep their doors open. Um, they need to make a profit. And when you look at the cost of doing business, in, just take, for example, the minimum wage increase over the last number of years, which we have taken on board and which has contributed to wage inflation. The mm. minimum did, wage... Did it increase by seven? Sorry, no, can I, if you let me finish... Yeah. Since 2011, in 2011, the minimum wage was 7.65. It is now at 9.55 and will be at 9.80 on the 1st of January. So if you do the maths on that, that's a 26% increase in the minimum wage in Ireland. So if you have minimum wage increases, you have upward wage inflation. I'm not saying all wages have gone up by 26%, but that is an example of wage inflation in our industry. All right, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you for your time and for joining us. As always, Adrian Cummins is Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. 
lots of people in touch, Michael, today and yesterday indeed. Susan from Ashburn contacted us in relation to the rents and the concern over the fact that they're still on the rise. And Susan says, is anyone surprised that we have so many homeless people on our streets when you look at the spiralling cost of rent? People are struggling to pay these rent and there's no help for those of us who are just on an average income. There needs to be a stop on these rent hikes. Landlords are making enough money as it is. Why should they be allowed to keep putting them up? Say Susan. Yeah, well, and up they go, it seems, uh, and uh, very, very expensive, very difficult uh, to understand how people can pay that uh, amount of rent or to think, uh, are people really earning that much money? Well, that's the problem. Mm. Susan feels that they just she just can't afford to pay anymore. Mm. Mm. Uh, on the same topic, another listener contacted us just to say that we had all this talk about no confidence in the government this week. How can we have confidence when we see the rents that are escalating all the time and there doesn't seem to be any contingency plan in place to help people? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know uh, how uh, uh, we can say to ourselves that it's 500 or 560 euro or whatever it is in Longford uh, to rent somewhere and it's 1500 in Dublin. Uh, Maybe that's the solution. Move to Longford. We had uh, an email, just moving to a different topic, an email from Danny, who was listening to your interview with Councillor Tommy Riley. And Danny says, it's very depressing listening to Tommy Riley complain about lack of civic services and community facilities in Navin. He has been on the council for decades. He and his party and all the other politicians have failed miserably to produce any relevant additional services or community facilities in the town for the past 30 years. It's all talk and political posturing. I'm sick of it, says Danny. Okay, well, I think, uh, in fairness, Tommy Riley said uh, that the problem lies with the government, this government, the government before it, the government before that, and all previous governments, in other words, his own party, Fianna Fáil, are equally responsible, but he he's making the point, nonetheless, uh, that uh, services uh, such as uh, the size of the Garda Force uh, has, uh, or have been neglected, as the case may be. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about property and uh, some of the derelict buildings in derelict Drogheda. Uh, Local Labour Party councillor P.O. Smith is suggesting uh, that the council buy these under compulsory purchase order. He's on the line and uh, God knows uh, they have no shortage uh, of properties to buy given the state that Drogheda is in these days. Good morning Michael. Uh, Yeah absolutely. Uh, There is a significant part of the town that does need uh, rejuvenation, narrow West Street area and the Westgate area and uh, I think that the, the council can play a very proactive part in relation to implementing the Westgate vision that we have for that area so we should really look at using the CPOs and the derelict sites act more extensively. Mm. Uh, we've done it for housing across the county where we brought into, into uh, play 80 new houses that were formerly derelict uh, and I did ask the question of the council meeting last week, could we use the same powers to compulsory portrait derelict buildings or derelict sites in the town and use, say, the fourth, second and third floors as, you know, one, two or three bedroom units. Mm. And then we could take people from the social housing uh, register and put them in there. And the answer was yes, we could do that. 
so I think that's what we need to do. Uh, or, or to look at, at uh, buildings that aren't derelict, uh, and this is a, a point that is being made over, because uh, when you walk uh, along the streets of the town, or for that matter, any town in the country, you'll see shop units downstairs and nothing happening upstairs. Yeah, and, and that's one of the problems that we have. Uh, uh, you hear an awful lot about even the debt of rural towns. And, mm. you know, my own opinion is that if we had people living above the shop, like used to happen many years ago, you've got people then in the town, and so the town centre then becomes vibrant. Uh, and, it, you know, there's a mix of a population there, so you've got young and old, and uh, it doesn't just become a centre for nighttime activity from Thursday to Saturday. Uh, and that's a strategy that we have to look at using. Now, I mean... The government, well, any government that's in play uh, has to come up with with funding to help. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. that type of thing, mm. similar to what happened with the with the derelict houses. You know, there was a special fund made available and, and Loud County Council and Francis Joe McGuinness availed of that and showed other councils across the country that this can be a success. So, It, it looks to me, though, uh, and I, I could be wrong, but the way it looks to me is that perhaps it, it could be a success with some of the buildings you're talking about, but others will have to be demolished uh, because I think Drogheda is looking particularly well since the FLA, when a lot of these buildings were painted. And, you know, that's aesthetically nice. But when you look behind the paint, uh, there's no roofs, there's no floors, uh, and uh, they continue to get worse as time goes on. You're absolutely correct. Uh, you notice the building that's across from the old guard of barracks in Drogheda, that's actually a state-owned building. Uh, now, it's painted, it looks well on the outside, but what can what's on the inside is another story. Uh, that's a state-owned building that we can, you know, there are a number of streams that we could use. So, for example, the, we could CPO buildings, we could look at our own buildings, we could use the repair and lease scheme. That's a government scheme whereby uh, if there's a building or 
a vacant house, a vacant building, a vacant house, and we want to put a unit in there, so a one or two or three bedroom unit, the state will give you 40000 up front to renovate that and bring it up to a standard that's fit for social housing. Mm-hmm. And then you recoup the funds back from the, the HAP payments that come in. So basically, we could have a circular payment of investment in buildings, vacant buildings, creating social housing, and the money going back into the state instead of going to private landlords. Mm. There's a, a significant cost to demolishing uh, these buildings, though, as well. And uh, if that's what needs to be done, perhaps it's better to do it now before they fall down. Well, there is a, there's a significant cost attached to the CPO uh, uh, structure anyway. But the thing about it is, if you're the owner of a derelict building and you're refusing to do anything with that building, mm. the council can legally come along to you and impose all the costs that the council incurred in bringing that building up to a standard and come back to you and say, you've got to pay this now. So if you've got other assets or other areas uh, that the council can come after, we can do that. And up to this point, there has been a reluctance from councils to do it for various reasons, the recession came and all that type of stuff. But now there's not, a, not one building in Drada that's in Nama. Mm. Every single building that was in Nama that was in Drada is now out of Nama. Uh, so there's no more excuse for people to kind of leave uh, buildings derelict in the town centre. Well, there's the cost of doing something with them. Uh, I mean, uh, imagine when you look at some of the buildings and the state of disrepair that they're in, that it, it would be more expensive uh, to demolish and rebuild or to repair or whatever uh, than it is just to leave it lying there. Yeah, and in that case, you put it up for sale and you get rid of it. Uh, or the council but who'd buy it? Yeah, well, th- th- well, this is it. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are... If you look at the Westgate Vision uh, Plan, we're applying as a Category B town uh, for funding, two million in funding uh, for that plan in the fourth phase of it. So, you know, that's going to give us a little bit of a, 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 an arsenal to go and purchase uh, buildings and indeed sites that may be there in the Westgate area that we could start using mm. uh, for social housing purposes for, for rebuilding. And in the event that... Like, if you take the the houses that were bought by Low County Council, the 80 houses that were bought by Low County Council in the last couple of years using the Derelict Sites Act and the CPO orders, there was nobody buying them. They weren't on the market. So, you know, we should do something similar in relation to derelict buildings. If they're not on the market and there's no one buying them, then we should consider coming in and purchasing them. Because even when we do it that way, we're not upsetting the so-called free market as it is because there isn't one. And I, I take it there's a health and safety issue uh, attached to these buildings uh, as well, apart from the fact that they could fall down on somebody, but uh, when buildings are left idle like that, quite often they end up with rodents in them and that sort of thing, uh, or, or become hubs for antisocial behaviour. Yeah, and we see that in Drada. So there's a number of areas in Drada, uh, in, again in the Westgate area, that... Uh, there's a rat infestation, there are storage problems, uh, and there was also problems where people gather for uh, antisocial behaviour reasons. And I don't want to specifically name where those reasons, those places are, uh, but they do exist. And, you know, a simple thing where the, the, the infrastructure of the buildings is broken down and people can't, who have got an operational house and got a tenant in that house, they can't get in access then into the storage system because it's covered over by rubble. And uh, the council can't go in because there's an insurance issue there in relation to transfer, trans transferring uh, hmm. uh, on property on people's property, uh, and that that's a that's a significant problem in a small area of Drogheda. And people uh, don't want to live beside the heroin dealers or the rats or the house that might go on fire beside them. 
Yeah, and like when you look at Dublin, and um, you look at the Docklands in Dublin, an awful lot of similar problems happened there, and it was transformed. It was transformed because it was a plan, because it was a will, and there was money put, put in place to do it. And we can't afford to leave the Westgate area of Trada lying the way it is. It's been like that too long. Now we have got a plan, we're looking for some money, but also the council needs to be proactive uh, and address this issue. And we can do that by CPO and some of the buildings that are there at the moment. Mm. And they're the buildings in the centre of uh, the town. Uh, you don't have to go too far out to find a, a lot more of idle buildings uh, all down the quays. Uh, some very old uh, and I imagine uh, valuable buildings for various reasons uh, which uh, seem uh, destined for uh, destruction. Yeah, yeah, uh, there is. And I know there's, like, there's some of the older warehouse buildings down lower lower end of the docks there that have been slowly transformed, uh, uh, not for social housing purposes. And then as you move up up the quays, then there are a number of buildings there. Like, I mean, there is a very interesting fund, as I said, the repair and lease scheme. So if you own a building and you're operating on the ground floor and you've got two or three floors above you, mm. uh, for every unit you can put into those floors, you will get 40,000 up front. To yeah, and do you know how many people have done it? No. And F- 15. not too many people have no, done it. F- 15 over the, yeah. last, over the last two years. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, th- th- there's a reason for that. Uh, there is an awful lot of red tape around this, uh, number one. And number two, there is an awful lot of standards that you have to bring those buildings up to. Mm. Uh, well, it, it was nine in the first year, which was dismal, and mm. that dropped to six in the second year for the reasons you're saying, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they ha- the, the, the regulations around the repair and lease scheme hasn't been reviewed to see what's working and what's not working. I think the, the scheme itself is, is, is a good scheme. And as you said, we've got an awful lot of buildings in the town where floors one, two and three are unoccupied. There's nothing actually happening in them. So here we have a potential to create housing, create social housing, Mm. good quality social housing in the town. Uh, And we have the bones of a scheme that we could actually use to do that. But there is something additional that we need to do to that scheme to make it work better. And it's just not being reviewed at the moment. Okay, Uh, but uh, there are problems, are there not, in letting out rooms uh, above uh, commercial buildings at the moment, above shops and that sort of thing. That requires a change in legislation, which uh, I think uh, is something that's being considered. Well, my understanding is that uh, if if you don't actually need planning permission now to uh, create a one or two bedroom apartment above the shop anymore. I think that was the planning act back in 2016 i think uh, allows people now to go go ahead and 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 create living space above the shop uh, which was designed to kind of fast track this re- rejuvenation of town centers uh, mm. and buildings uh, so in my view that was a good thing uh, however if you're going to rent it out to people there are certain standards that it has to reach and that that can be inspected by a council officer uh, and if you don't reach, reach those standards, you don't, you don't get the tenants. And the rents are significant, as you know, you're staff at the moment. Mm. You know, so there, there is uh, a rental incentive. Uh, there is a small uh, 40,000 per unit. So if mm. you've got a, three floors, you're looking at 120 grand towards the the, uh, the to help you well, renovate those into one or two or three bedroom apartments. More, more expensive to rent in Louth today than it is in Limerick. 
uh, as we've been hearing uh, this morning and undoubtedly more expensive uh, to rent in Drogheda than it is in other parts of the country. Uh, there is a, an ironic situation, is there not? I mean, we could argue all day about how many people are actually homeless in this country and uh, I suppose that hinges on how you define homelessness and who you speak to. Uh, but if you said it was around 10,000 people who were homeless in this country and you were to renovate or repair or rebuild all the vacant units in Drogheda, you'd probably have uh, enough space to house all of them. I think so. Uh, I mean, I think on Post did, did a, uh, uh, some survey recently where they identified that across the country there was approximately 92,000 houses that were vacant. Uh, and vacant and, and unoccupied and derelict to some extent. Now, whether those houses are in high demand areas, I don't know. But we do know that there is a significant number of them. Uh, we do know that there is a problem with the CPO process itself. For example, there is a house in, in Brookville in Drogheda that the council have been trying to CPO for the last three years, and it's very protracted. Um, so you have, to, you have a time lag. Uh, you have to go and notify people, you have to do searches, you have to uh, solicitors fees, you have to allow a period of time for somebody to come forward, say from America or somewhere and say, oh, my great-grandmother left me that house. Uh, so it does take three to four years to get something uh, into into play. Uh, but certainly when you look around Drada, and even now at this moment in time, I could direct you to a number of different uh, places in Drada where houses are vacant and derelict. And, uh, and nothing's happening, and they're not on the market either. And if they were put in place, you're right, there could be uh, something done to address the homeless situation fairly quickly because you can renovate a house quicker than you can build it. And, uh, you know, there is an advantage in that regard. Well, there's plenty of them. <laughs> All right. Plenty of them. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. All right, listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us as always. Labour Party Councillor in Louth, P.O. Smith. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Maria, I think you were full flight uh, there and we rudely interrupted you. So uh, good to get back and give some more time to the comments and indeed uh, the reactions uh, that people have been giving to some of uh, the topics we've been discussing this morning. Thanks, Michael. I'm glad you've been able to give me this time because we had lots of reaction to uh, the report yesterday that we did regarding Lorraine Mulready's situation. That was uh, her house in St. Vinian's Park in Drogheda where the leak went on for seven weeks before being fixed. And on hearing that report, we got a phone call from Laura, who also lives in Drogheda. Laura lives in a council house and she rang to let us know that Three weeks ago, her gas boiler broke. She rang the council when it broke and they told her that it would be at least Christmas until anything could be done to try and fix it. So she said she decided to ring a plumber herself just to maybe get it checked out and see what the cost would be to repair it herself. She says that the plumber came out and she paid €70 for the call out. But she was aghast to hear that the boiler needs two parts and it would cost between three to four hundred euro for the parts alone never mind the labor so she says she just doesn't have that type of money she works part time but her partner is out of work at the moment and she's three children and she says she really doesn't know what she's going to do that there's no way she can be without heat in her house between now and Christmas. She says that she uses prepaid cards to pay for her ESB and gas and at the moment she's using 
an electric fire in the sitting room in the mornings to take the nip out of the house as she puts it. But even using that for a little time every day, she's noticed that her electricity bill has already jumped from 20 euro to 40 euro a week. And she says that the council have said they will give her a letter uh, giving her permission to get in a plumber and pay the plumber herself. But how can she do this when she doesn't have that type of money? Okay, it's a, a dilemma. We also had uh, a listener in touch to say, very worrying, Michael, listening to uh, the stories about people who can't have repairs done to the heating in their home. And I think he's referring to the gentleman we had on Mm. last week. Uh, This is essential work that should be done. If this happens to me, I will struggle to be able to get it done myself. I barely can afford to to feed my family and to look after my family as it is. Okay. Says this listener just didn't want to give a name there. Mm. Uh, Jackie also responded and she says that there are many houses around the county in need of repairs, including people without heating. So what is going to happen? Happen? How can the council just run out of money for these essential works? We need answers to this. John phoned in and John says that he's astounded by the response from the council to our story yesterday. He says, can you not get somebody from the council to come on the show to at least explain to tenants what is going on, how this has happened and when repairs are going to start again? People need to be told Uh, what is happening surely the council will have to get money from somewhere especially when it is emergency repairs says John okay on the other side of the coin we had a text from Margaret and Margaret says that my blood boils when I hear people like Lorraine talking she and all the others in council houses expect everything done for nothing If something goes wrong in my house, I have to find the money to fix it. Can they not do anything for themselves, says Margaret. Hmm. Okay, strong words. Another listener, Susan, got in touch and just says it's horrible what that poor woman had to go through. She was really caught between a rock and a hard place. Another listener says the lady is renting from the council. I cannot understand why it would not have been a priority to send out somebody immediately to fix a leak. Everyone knows that if you leave a leak, it's going to get worse. Instead, it was allowed to go on for weeks and weeks, making the situation 10 times worse. Okay, well, I suppose the simple answer and it's probably far too simple but the simple answer is you can't spend money that you don't have and the council doesn't have the money the budget has run out uh, and there's no money left uh, to fund uh, the maintenance uh, grant at this stage have we time for one or two more Michael? Eileen Hmm. phoned in in relation to uh, the amount of time that young children are spending on screens we were discussing that too and she thinks it's all down to the parents she thinks that parents nowadays take the easy option that they just don't seem to find the time to actually sit down with their children and do things like play she says that they're always rushing around and it's just easier to stick a mobile phone or a laptop in front of the kids mm. and not spend time with them. Well, of course it is, yeah. Now, sure, uh, some people do it for that reason because it's easier and other people do it because they don't think about it and uh, I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who do think about it and act otherwise. Seamus from Drahada phoned in uh, and he's, he thought you were getting 
hot onto the collar, as he puts it, in relation to the presidential uh, spending and defending Michael uh, D. Higgins uh, over the payment and criticising the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, Seamus says that if the committee had waited until after the election, would they not have been accused of some type of cover-up? Yeah, well, I don't think so. I think it uh, was ill-advised uh, and uh, I think the proof of that was on the front pages of uh, the papers yesterday, as I was saying on the show. Maybe that means I am hot under the collar, but uh, we've uh, an election campaign underway and may the best man win and uh, may uh, whatever is said uh, in relation to the candidates be fair and across the board. Final comments to Jack and Cullen who got in touch to say does anybody know what is the stuff farmers are spreading on the land and the smell it's giving off? It is not ordinary slurry Michael as I live in the country and I know that smell. This stuff is toxic and would knock you out with the smell. Does anybody know what it is? Jack wants to know. So there you go. No, no more than that, is it? That's it. Okay. It was just a text in. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 That's 1850 Or you can text us on 086 1800 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. This week, uh, the European Court of uh, Justice backed uh, the European Parliament's rejection for journalists to see the accounts and receipts and other allowances pertaining to members of the European Parliament. This has been described as scandalous by Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Uh, good morning to you. You would prefer to reveal what you get and how you spend it. I would prefer if the Parliament vouched all expenses received by its members and published it. And that's actually in line with the decision of the majority members of the European Parliament. The, the European Parliament adopted a report which called for much more transparency. It was the decision of the Bureau of the European Parliament, which I think has about 15 members, um, including our own Mairead McGuinness, who made a decision to counteract that by deciding that there shouldn't be um, accountability and there shouldn't be an element of vouched um, expenditure in what's called the general expenditure allowance. Mm. um, And that's a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about uh, a lot of money in terms of uh, the president's uh, expenses uh, and €317,000 that's spent a year by the office of the president rather than the individual who holds... Uh, the office. Uh, But in terms of this general expenditure allowance, we're talking about €4,416 that is paid to all MEPs monthly. Yes, Um, and there are guidelines in terms of how that can be spent, but there have been serious questions raised by some journalists who have investigated this matter as to whether or not all MEPs are meeting those guidelines. Now, I have no evidence to suggest that Irish MEPs are doing anything other than re- remaining within those guidelines, which allow for um, you know, quite some scope in terms of how the expenditure is, is spent. Um, there is a recommendation that 
the, that allowance is kept in a separate account so that it, you, you can ensure that it is spent mm. on what it's supposed to be and doesn't get mixed up with any personal account. Well, it, it must um, be. I, I mean, I'm sure we wouldn't say that anybody is trousering this money, so it must be spent, and I'm sure that they're all spending it uh, appropriately, or, or nearly all of them, because there's 750 MEPs and only 20 have given money back to the European Parliament. Yeah, and you know the, the the key element of the expenditure is obviously for office running and maintenance costs. <clears throat> uh, um, newspaper study that was published last year indicated that investigative journalists uncovered 249 MEPs that did not have offices that were visible at all. So that they were um, spending so money on. They were spending money on offices that didn't exist. Well, we don't know um, exactly how they were spending. As I say, uh, the, the the fund isn't isn't um, exclusively for having a physical office. Although it would be hard to hmm. understand how you could spend um, four thousand four hundred euro a month on essentially office running costs without having an an office. So on a, um, on a laptop, on a laptop, and an office manager. In other words. Yes, well, um, I, I can only speak for ourselves and for mm. me, per, me, me personally. In terms of that office, it is managed as an office account. It is um, um, one of my staff is the co-signature on it. Actually, it's, se- it's separate to the payment for the staff. They're paid directly, aren't they? They are. Right. They're paid. They're paid directly. To so you could only pay. You, you, you could only claim for rent and things like the laptop, not for the staff. Oh, absolutely, yes. So it's yeah. um, cost relating to the office space. So in my case, it goes to rent, it goes to heating, insurance, water, electricity, clean, you know, office, um, office space that's you know, used exclusively for um, my own constituency service. Mm. Um, it covers all the administration costs. It also would cover um, the likes of subscriptions to newspapers and other media outlets. It covers all supplies and stationery. Mm. It also covers... Um, office equipment c- costs. Yeah, you so buy a photocopier. Case, or, I, I, yeah. I should say, I think that the, that the payment is excessive, but I actually use it to ensure that my office in Carrickmacross is among, I would argue, one of the best um, equipped offices in terms of the IT infrastructure that we have in place, in terms of the conference call and facilities, in terms of the phone system that we have in place. Do you manage to spend it all? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it must be like NASA in Carrick Macross then at, uh, what is it, four and a half thousand euro a month. Yes, well, we have, and it also covers some, it also covers some representational activities in terms of, there are a number of, um, there are a number of things that I would be doing that wouldn't be directly related to if you my my role as an MEP per se in terms of information meetings or hosting organisations and um, I organise um, meetings and public meetings in particular across 15 counties. Um, I've been in every county on different occasions. People may have seen the likes of advertisements for those, some of which um, would be covered in this um, expenditure allowance. But in my view, what's crucially important with any public expenditure is that the um, allocation 
is published and mm. how it's spent is published across the board, not in terms of individuals doing it themselves and saying this is what I spend because even mm. if I was just... Well, you you, you want to be transparent exactly. and you want everybody to be transparent uh, regardless of, of what other people might think about the amount that is given or how it's spent. You're saying, well, look, let's be above board about it because it's a lot of money and it is a lot it's of a lot money of and there's no mistaking that it's a lot of money because we're making a big fuss about €317,000. Uh, it may uh, be spent wisely or unwisely but we don't know, and that's what the fuss is about here. But when we talk about well, the four... Well, crucially in this instance is that it's not only that the, the accounts aren't published, mm. there is no mechanism for me to report to anybody how I spend that money. And but, that's well, that's, that, that, that's the point. I, dealing, but, but I was just going to put it into context of the presidential the, expenses, if I could, Matt, because that figure of 4416 a month that you are entitled to, uh, in comparison to the 317000 obviously, is not much. But when you multiply it by 750 MEPs, it's £40 million a year. Absolutely. It's a huge amount of money. And it's taxpayers' money, even though it's within the... European Union, so it's not to say in the same instances as, say, national expenditure that if I didn't spend that money, it could go into the health service or the education service in Ireland. Unfortunately, it wouldn't. It would go into um, the European black hole of an overall um, budget. But at the same time, it is public money, and people have a right to know that when public money is drawn down, that it's used for the purpose that it has been allocated. People can then have arguments about whether or not it, it is correct that that is allocated, but people have a right to know that people are operating those mm. accounts within the... And in many respects, um, you know, the, the people who the real conversation needs to happen with, in your case, Michael, are those MEPs who actually prevented that from happening. Members of the EPP, the Fine Gael MEPs, in other words. Absolutely, and particularly okay. the Fine Gael MEP who was sitting on the of 15 who actually made this decision. All right, uh, and uh, this on top of a, a fairly handsome salary, uh, a very handsome pension, and indeed a, a daily signing-in allowance uh, that MEPs enjoy. That's €313 Euro to turn up for work, is it? Absolutely, yeah, it is crazy. What, what's that for? Well, in fairness, um, the bulk of that is spent because when you are travelling from Ireland to Brussels on a weekly basis, you have to accommodate yourself, and accommodation in Brussels is not cheap. Um, so it, uh, you know, the vast bulk of that does be, does be spent in relation to that. But again, there's no way mm. of vouching for that. And I, I would much prefer a system be in place whereby I come to Brussels um, rent a hotel room or an apartment or whatever MEPs decide to do and then submit those, those receipts in order to be recouped. That would be a much more transparent and a very easy way of being transparent and actually ensuring that people could, be, could have the knowledge in the same way as our flights are organised. So mm. Our flights um, are organised directly through the European, the European Parliament. Mm. They book the flights, they pay for them. I would much prefer if the same system was in place for accommodation because, again, it means that we would be above... Um, question in relation to how that funding is actually... Yeah, is actually I, I don't know. I think I, I'd be able to strike a, a deal uh, for less than 313 to stay somewhere for the night uh, or I'd get a flat. I'd have a flat in Brussels and one in Strasbourg and Janie, I'd be well up on the deal. Yeah, perhaps. I presume you have a flat in both cities, do you? Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I have an apartment in yeah. an apartment in Brussels, and yeah. we stay in hotels in in Strasbourg. Which, by and large, in in fairness, the um, cost of. 
subsidence which includes food and accommodation in your Strasbourg week in some in some instances you would actually be down money because it is excessive the right, cost okay. of staying in Strasbourg on the weeks of the pla- of the plenary the other three weeks of the month I'm told you can get very good value indeed but obviously hoteliers and others take full advantage of the situation in relation to Strasbourg. All right. Uh, well, it's a, a, an expensive business uh, for the people of Europe. And, well, I uh, think the, the, the fundamental, as a principle, mm. we, we, and I have difficulty in terms of how much politicians are actually paid. Um, it's a gravy train, isn't it? I don't believe it's possible to adequately represent families who are in dire straits, um, who mm. are uh, you know, under mortgage distress. And we see that you know, in terms of the housing motion in the Dáil this week. There are some elected representatives who simply cannot get their heads around the fact that families are, are struggling. Now, that's why we don't take our full wages in mm. Sinn Féin. But at the same time, you know, at the same time, it would be much better if collectively we made a decision that we actually reduced our wages collectively in knowledge of the fact that a lot of the people that we represent... It's not to say that re- elected representatives should live in poverty. No. It's been proven in the past no, but, uh, that when that happens... How, it can, anybody square, how can anybody square the reality that somebody uh, who's unemployed gets €188 Euro a week and an MEP fighting their corner allegedly gets 313 euro for turning up for work a day on top of their wages and their expenses which we've been hearing are through the roof uh, which will be rewarded with uh, a golden pension it's indefensible and yeah. it's further and it becomes even more indefensible when it comes to the point that people re- recognise that there's no actually accounting process for somebody to prove that they actually spent that money on the purpose for which it w- was meant. And that, to me, is the first scandal that needs to be addressed. There needs to be full transparency in all areas of expenditure of whether it be a government institution. And that's what's, that's what's so frustrating about this, because in the European Parliament, in the same way as people would on the Public Accounts Committee or others, we we get up and actually slam other European agencies for not being accountable for how they spend their money or mm. for being excessive in terms of how they spend their money. And we wouldn't tolerate a situation where any board gave its members um, uh, an account that was unvouched. And the fact that the Bureau of the European Parliament has adopted that position in relation to this particular line of expenditure absolutely undermines any authority that we have to to lecture others or to demand um, transparency and accountability in terms of public expenditure. I had had meant to talk to you about the boundary changes. I've run over time, unfortunately, so I hope you'll forgive me. But if people are interested in what we've been talking about and think it's an attractive position, I'm sure they'll also be interested to know that there'll be a a space for another two Irish MEPs uh, come the next year. Well, actually, can I just say this, Michael, Mm -hmm. uh, Michael? Ireland hasn't gained two MEPs. We have lost one because, unfortunately, the, the people North. of the North who yeah. had three MEPs are being denied that opportunity. And I think it's a wasted opportunity on part of the government not to allocate those two additional seats to the North to ensure that we continue to have all Ireland representation in the European Parliament. It is crucially important and has been crucially important during the Brexit negotiations that we had voices from the North in the heart of the European decision-making and nobody has been to the fore other than the four Sinn Féin MEPs operating as a team, an all-Ireland team. It has strengthened our position and it has strengthened Ireland's position in the negotiations. Okay, and I apologise for getting hung up on uh, the huge amounts of money that are being paid. Not at all, it's a big issue. (laughs) I think it is. Thank you indeed. As always, Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. 
Now that 313 euro that we were talking about uh, for signing in to the parliament uh, that MEPs enjoy actually amounts to 40,000 euro a year. As I was saying to Matt Carthy, it's hard to balance uh, the idea of an MEP fighting on behalf of somebody who's unemployed getting 188 euro a week that that MEP gets €313 for turning up for work on top of their wages, uh, on top of uh, their pension uh, and their golden parachute and their expenses and this general expenditure allowance of €4,416, which uh, is unaccounted for. It's uh, far away from the lives of many people, as uh, Dr Bernadette McMahon can testify. She's a director of uh, the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice and together with St Vincent de Paul they've published what's called Stories of Struggle and Dr Bernadette McMahon uh, you've been speaking to people who cannot make ends meet or struggle to make ends meet or who can just about make ends meet and Exactly um, Michael and they are people whose income doesn't allow them and presents them because it's inadequate, it's an income which, you know, there's an enormous gap between that income and what they need to spend to have a minimum essential standard of living. You know, so that gap, week after week, you know, is very difficult to bridge, and in fact, people just can't bridge it. So it means that as time goes on, if you're living in pov- if you're living with an inadequate income for a prolonged period, you're going to get deeper and deeper into poverty. And tell us how that happens because you've been speaking with 30 families uh, who have different stories no doubt uh, but they're all making very difficult decisions yeah and well, you're asking me how it happens well some of them of course um have become homeless because the um the landlord asks for an increase in rent which is beyond their capacity to to respond to um some of them are there because of family breakdown or break up and uh, that's a good number, small number for that would go for that. Um, other people would have it because unemployment happens, you know, yeah. and for low-skilled jobs are not available in that particular area. Sometimes it happens because of disability. One or other of the parents um, has a disability. And between looking after that person and the family, you know, again, the income, the second member of the family often isn't free to seek employment. And caught between a, a rock and a hard place. And I, I take it it must be a very stressful situation to find yourself in because there must be things that the rest of us take uh, as something that we enjoy for granted uh, that uh, elude a lot of people who are in this situation. Yes. Well, just imagine yourself, Michael, at the end of a week, you know, when people look at the bills and the money, and suppose you've got several competing demands and mm. there's no way that you're going to meet them. You know, you have to face the cost of food, the rent, you know, education for the children because there's always some expenses there, clothing, uh, energy, keeping the house warm, transport, and also if you want your children to have some social activities so they're not really alienated from the peer group. Now, all of those competing demands, not just one week, but every week, and they're there. So in, in the beginning, you know, people, when it happens initially, people are a bit anxious and they have a concern, but that grows into stress and grows into depression. And then sometimes people can be just completely overwhelmed. Now, I, must, I want to say something, too. One thing that's very impressive is the resilience of people mm. because they want to put the children first. They want to hide as much as possible the poverty from the children. And in spite of all that you hear, 
they are good managers of budgets. Of the 30 people that we interviewed in depth, there was only one, and that's other than not blaming that person either, wasn't a good manager. The others had priorities. They did without. They made choices. You know, they looked for alternatives, for cheaper alternatives and uh, substitutions. And often the parents just cut back very much for themselves. It was always the children first. So that they would do without themselves so oh, that yes, the children could have whatever little they could afford. Yeah, and not just only for the food, but they cut back, for example, you know, if if the health can be, you know, often mm. they ignore their own health, they need a visit to the dentist, there isn't the money there. Um, also, even, for example, getting your hair cut, getting mm. new clothes, you know, um, many of them would never have the night out because, or, but they would try and get the children so the children don't become isolated. The children have some not many, but they have some activities. And in your view, does it have to be like this? No, it doesn't have to be like that. Poverty just isn't automatic, you know. It's because of decisions that are made, um, for example, and, you know, they, they are structural. A lot of the causes, for example, the housing situation is a structural situation, you know, mm. and um, how we actually allocate our rent, our sorry, our income, you know, we have a problem that people do want to pay tax. Well, people do want to pay taxes. The money actually available for public services is going to be less. So, um, you know, there are a lot of um, change poverty issues that really could be solved by action for housing, for income, for more accessible to services like um, childcare and um, or else would be health and um, transport. No, they are... Um, they are um, possible have been dealing with have been dealt with now I have to say too though that every year every time there's an increase in the social welfare rate that does something to alleviate poverty mm. and I just certainly over the last number of years there has been an increase in the um, in, in the rates and that we welcome every increase because that's a step forward and no doubt hoping that there'll be a similar increase this year I have we to leave it so. yeah, we're over time Bernadette thank you indeed though for joining us nice to speak to you Dr Bernadette McMahon is a director of uh, the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice and brings our programme to its conclusion today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.